Welcome to Succession Stories, insights for next generation entrepreneurs. I'm Lori Barkman. I've spent my career bringing an entrepreneurial approach to mature companies struggling with change. As an outside executive of a third generation, 120 year old company, I was part of a long-term succession plan. Now I work with entrepreneurs, privately held companies and family businesses to develop innovations that create enterprise value and transition plans to achieve their long-term goals. On this podcast, listen in while I talk with entrepreneurs who are driving innovation and culture change. I speak with owners who successfully transitioned their company and others who experienced disappointment along the way. Guests also include experts in multi-generational businesses and entrepreneurship. If you are a next generation entrepreneur looking for inspiration to grow and thrive or an owner who can't figure out the best way to transition their closely held company, this podcast is for you. On this episode of Succession Stories, I was excited to speak with Don Fuchs Coleman. Don is the former CEO of Weavertown Environmental Group, a company that her father started. We covered a lot of ground in this interview, from her decision to join the family business, getting the keys to the company when she didn't expect it, leading a turnaround in growth, and then selling the business to a strategic buyer. And that was just the beginning of her story. Five years after the sale, Dawn is living her entrepreneurial mantra, if you're not going, you're not growing. She's the founder of We Guide You Grow, bringing her experience to other family businesses. And she's the author of a new book, Get Your Game Face On, The Secret to Growing Your Company in Any Economy. In today's economic environment, I think you'll enjoy hearing her story and core principles to build value. Don, welcome to Succession Stories. I am so excited to talk with you today. We met recently at a smart business conference in March. You were on a panel discussing family business transitions. And I knew of you through mutual friends from YPO, WPO here in Pittsburgh, but we never had the chance to meet. I've always wanted to talk to you about your experience. So really glad you're here. You're the former CEO of Weavertown Environmental Group with a successful exit. And I look forward to talking to you about that. And now you have a next stack story. You have a career doing what you love. And I'm really excited to talk to you about what you're doing in the next phase of your career. So there's a lot to talk about. So let's start by talking about the family business and your father. Your dad was an oil man and he launched the company, which was called Weavertown Group in 1981. What did the company do and how did it diversify over time? So my father was a truck driver for somebody else for a lot of years hauling bulk liquids. And he said, you know, I think I can do this for myself. So he bought a truck, like you said, in 1981. And he did the same thing. He started hauling into the oil fields. But he really caught the tail end of when things got classified as a hazardous material. So he went ahead and applied for all the permits all the way from the east of the Mississippi. So New Jersey, for an example, was a very difficult state to get a license to haul hazardous materials, as you can imagine. So he went ahead and applied for all the hard states, all the regular states. So we really became recognized as an industry leader for knowing how to haul liquids. Believe it or not, there's a lot of talent behind it because of weight distribution and other things that can happen out there on the roadways. So from there, his client would say, he, they would call him for a load and he would be there you know, several hours early. And I guess back then in the 80s, it was very difficult to find truckers to be on time. So not only was he there on time, he would actually take advantage of getting an extra load. So then the client said to him, hey, we have this over here. Will you take a look at this pit? It needs pumped out. 
So it was really through client interaction that he built some other businesses within his company of transportation. So that's sort of when the diversity began to happen for him. It was really out of a need from our client base. That's a great background. Don, I'm curious about your background and your work experience. You eventually joined the company, but it would be great to know about what you did before you came into the business, or did you go right into the company after college? People ask me a lot about what I hear from people who are G2, you know, Generation 2, or G3. Did they work elsewhere, or did they get all of their work experience in the company? What, what, was, your, what was your story? So my story was I was a junior in high school. My father started his business. So I saw him washing and waxing his truck on the weekend, thought it looked interesting, but really had no clear vision of joining his business at that time. I've always wanted to be in business from the age of 13. I had a cupcake business through the Future Business Leaders of America that I started. And it's funny, Lori, the cupcakes weren't selling. And I said, how come these cupcakes weren't selling? So I decided to put a message on them for Valentine's Day. And these cupcakes went through the roof to where the mothers called me and said, stop selling cupcakes. We can't keep up in our kitchens any longer. So I've always had a knack for business. So with that being said, I moved to Arizona after attending Robert Morris College at the time, not Robert Morris University as it is today. And my sister and I moved to Arizona in Phoenix. And I said, well, what am I going to do now? Because my plan was to finish my degree after being an in-state resident in Arizona for a year. But what happened next was unbelievable. I started interviewing at different positions. I went with a temporary company and this silver hair guy comes in the office and he really became a mentor to me later on. Looking back, I see what a profound impact he had on me. And his name was Carl Phillips. And his partner called me on the phone and said, are you Dawn? And I said, yeah. And I had just met this guy. Uh, my first assignment was showing office space and buildings and leasing facility. And I went to, got his blueprints out, took him down to his office. And I guess I made such an impression on him because nobody in December in Arizona wears a wool suit, but I did because I was from the Northeast. I didn't know any better. I think you should always look great. So his partner called me and said, whatever you did with Carl today, he's so impressed. He wants to offer you a job. So my dad told me I had to have a job within six months of living in Arizona. He wasn't going to pay my bills. I said, okay. So I had a job. He called me. I said, I got a job. He said, well, how much are you making? I said, I don't know. I didn't ask. He said, do you have medical benefits? I said, I don't know. I didn't ask. He said, well, you're not very smart. I said, well, I don't know. I just have a good feeling about it. Well, come to find out, Carl Phillips ran a stock brokerage company. And I didn't know anything about stocks and bonds. But I got a firsthand seat at Stocks and Bonds. I became a stockbroker myself. I have my Series 7. I'm my branch manager's license. And then the market crashed and I came back to Pennsylvania. But all during that time frame, my father was telling me, hey, Dawn, I'm building this business. I would like you to be a part of it. And I came back and I joined his company in 1988. In 88. So the company had been around about seven years. I love the story, by the way, about the cupcake, uh, because I think that gives a real credence to your entrepreneurial gene there. And it also is quite interesting that you got your stock brokerage license. So you have a financial acumen, you have a business acumen. There's something inherently that you enjoyed about business. And here's your dad saying, hey, come into the company. What was your kind of emotional reaction to that? Did you think, hey, I want to carve out my own thing? Or did you have a sense that, yeah, you know, you would like to work alongside your dad. 
Well, I was really impressed that he kept calling me because he said, you know, Dawn, I want to be a family business. You're out there working for somebody else. So it was a recruitment over time. He kept trying to lure me back, lure me back. Obviously, the negative impact to the stock market, the business had changed. Carl's plan was to totally give me his book of business. He was disappointed when I left. But I said, you know, Carl, I realize I'm about stocks and bond trading. I can't control it. I can't predict it. You can have some ideas about it. But I want to know that my balance sheet is my balance sheet. So I said it was time for me to go back home and help my father build this business and this brand. So I always had a brand passion about branding. And I came back and I started the ground up. I mean, there was no, hey, kid, come with me. You're getting an office in the corner, big cherry wood desk. None of that happened for me. And I wouldn't want that to happen. That's just not who my father is. And I don't think it should happen for any family business, to be honest with you. So he started me from the ground up. We had a heating fuel island where we fueled diesel fuel trucks. We did, PennDOT was a big client of ours, construction companies. So I worked a fuel island. It's just like pumping gas, but you're pumping diesel fuel. I did all the cash receipts, all the sales receipts, the accounts. So I really learned the business from the heating oil business first. We had about, God, at the time we sold, we had almost 3,000 heating oil clients just in, believe it or not, people still have heating oil instead of gas or electric. So with that being said, I joined the office at some point. He brought me upstairs. I can't remember when that was. And then I was on the desk of all things answering the phone. I'm like, Jesus, this is a long progression to success. And then there was another mentor of mine, Chuck Alexi was his name. He said, why are you wasting your time answering the telephone? I said, I don't know. This is where my dad put me. He says, you're a wasted talent. Come with me. He put me in his sales car and he was hard of hearing. So we would go out and see clients. I would do all the talking. I would close the deals and Chuck couldn't hear. So during lunches and stuff, he would ask the client to repeat things we already asked him. So I'm kicking him under the table all the time. We get back in the car. He says, hey, why are you kicking me under the table? I said, you asked the guy the same question three times. He answered you four times. I said, how much more does a client have to answer you? But we had a great relationship. So from there, I got my own sales car. And that's really when I really started getting into client development, leadership, closing the deal, the art of a deal. So that's how that progressed. Oh, that's great. I love that story. I also like how you talked about mentorship. So Carl was your first mentor back in Arizona, then your sales mentor. And I was curious too, were there any other family members in the company? Yes, there was. So in fact, it was pretty family intense at the time. My mother was my dad's right hand. She did all of our books and accounting with my sister, Janine. Vanessa was there as well. She was a salesperson at the time. And I'm the youngest of three daughters. My father's name's Donald. I'm the, I call myself the unofficial junior being Don. And my uncle wasn't there yet, but my uncle ultimately did join the business. And that was it at the time for true family members. But one thing about our company, we really became, I know a lot of people say they have family businesses and everybody's family, but we loved all of our employees so much that I really feel like I came from a family of hundreds. (laughs) You hear that a lot, that family businesses have a very strong loyalty and culture. There's less turnover compared to maybe the average in the industry. There are other certain characteristics. Obviously, you cared a lot about your clients, and then you cared a lot about your employees. So much that you you just said that you felt like they were family. That's great. Yeah, I think it just makes it happier for everybody. In our business, we were 24-7, 365. 
And I'll tell you a funny story. I had a campaign. I rolled on all of our tractors and trailers and pickup trucks. I started putting up 24-7, 365 in a cold square. It was really artsy. It was fun. It was energetic. And my father came by and I didn't run things by him. At that time, I was running the business. So I was the president. So I didn't really run things by him very often because sometimes we would agree or disagree. But he would say, give me his opinion. He'd walk away and he'd say, hey, Dawn, at the end of the day, it's your decision. If you think that's a good idea, go ahead, go with it. Well, I knew he would not like this idea. So I went with it without him. And he came through the parking lot one day. He looked at what the guy was putting on the decal. And he goes, what are you doing? And the guy tells him. And he came up to my office. And he said, I think that is a crazy campaign. I says, do you? He said, yeah. I said, well, that's great. That means it's even better than I thought it was. And that was sort of our relationship. He would think some of the things I did was really nuts. And I would think it was the greatest thing since sliced bread. And sometimes he was right. Sometimes I was. Luckily for us, more times than not, I was on the right side of it. You had a good intuition. So on that campaign, were you right? I was right. You know, he said to me, everybody and their mother has 24-7 on their trucks. I said, but you know what? When somebody calls on that 24th hour, nobody's answering and we do. I said, so that's the difference. And I think you have to look for your differentiator. What really differentiates your business from your others? What, not just your competition, just from business in general. And if you work from that standpoint, that should really be your mantra. Yeah, you're so outward focused, being oriented to the brand, oriented to sales and marketing you know, like you have the financial acumen and you have this other side, which is, which was great. So I'm not surprised that you were successful in your role as, as CEO. I want to rewind just a smidge here on the point when you were getting the sense that the ascension might happen, right? Because you just shared that awesome story. At that point, you were already president. I want to learn a little bit more about that time between your growth in the company, you were doing well, you were growing the sales capacity. And then at some point, either you were approached or maybe you approached your father to say, hey, you know, I want to be considered for when you retire. What does that leadership succession look like? I know financial succession is different. We'll talk about that in a second. But from a leadership succession standpoint, what transpired there? So what's interesting is my father's funny. First off, I never asked him if I could take over his business. I don't think anybody should. If you're asking, then you're not the right candidate. Somebody should come to you and approach you, in my opinion. But that's just me. That's not here nor there. But that's all my philosophy is. I felt I was doing a very good job. And I didn't know when he would want to transition. In fact, my father transitioned his business very early. He was only in his 60s when he transitioned his business. So he only led his business for 20, 21 years. And um, I can see along the way that he also was a mentor. He was planning seeds to see how I would handle things. Like he would give me, what what would you do in this situation scenario? Or I have this going on. How would you handle it? So looking back, I think those were my lessons to see if he thought I was on the right page or the wrong page for him to even consider my name for the president CEO. But when he transferred his business, it was 2001, the steel industry had really suffering in the Pittsburgh marketplace. And unfortunate for us, that was 80% of our book of business, which is very dangerous. I know it's the 80-20 rule, but that is just not a good model. Things went to heck in a handbasket. We were left with a really big aging, uncollected. And I have to tell you, I kept going into the powers to be's office because I was just a sales. When I say just a salesman, by the way, I have true respect for salespeople. I think they have the hardest job 
when things are good, they're not getting thanked. And when things are bad, they're catching holy heck from everybody. Where's your sales numbers? So speaking from one salesperson to salespeople listening to your line, I get it. So I kept going to the powers to be saying, hey, listen, things aren't looking good at a couple of our clients. I They owe us a lot of money. I'm not sure we should keep sending crews to clean up their dirt at our expense. And I got patted on the head, said, hey, don't worry, kid, we got this covered. Well, needless to say, they didn't have anything covered. Everything happened. And to the point where we actually were looking to declare bankruptcy during that time because we endured 21 bankruptcy from companies not being able to pay us. Most people would not survive, but because we only invest back in our business, we were very, you know, I would say it was easy because it wasn't. You know, we had some dark days through that process. But with that being said, we did come out of the ashes. And really, that is when he transitioned the business. He said to me, we had left the lawyer's office and we had a pretty significant meeting about what were our options. And I came out on the curb. I said, we can't take a bankruptcy option. That is not us. We can turn this thing around. He said, you're going to turn it around. And he passed the baton to me. Wow. Just like that. Just like that. And then he announced it at a Christmas party. And I can tell you, that's pretty scary when you're faced with that kind of financial setback and you get the baton. That's not really fun. But I did turn it around. I I changed his team out. I put my team in. And needless to say, I sold with that same team. I had no, no changes in my team. I find this so interesting. I'm always so curious about what happens when G2 or that next generation takes over, because you can't do the same thing that's always been done, especially for your situation when it was a turnaround. You you had to do something different. And I want to learn a little bit more about this. You were named CEO and your dad, did you say I'm out at that point? Did he become chairman and was out of the day to day? Because he gave you the keys at that point. But how involved was he after that? Well, he gave me half of a key. Okay. (laughs) I was the president. He maintained the CEO title. He called his attorney at the time and said, you have to be Dawn's boss because, you know, I went, you know, I want to sort of remove myself. So he actually put a lawyer in charge of me and the attorney, I'll never forget it. He said, oh, I'll never hear from her because she knows what she's doing. And honestly, that happened too. I never had to meet with him or anything. I just did my own thing. Donald is a really interesting guy. He allows people the room they need to run. He did not micromanage me, but like I said, he would be in my office every day, four or five times a day. What are you doing? What's the team doing? And if he didn't like something, I I figured him out very early because he's my dad. I know him well. He would go try and work his deals with my people and he would try to get them to talk to me. It was very transparent to me, but to him, he didn't think it was. And we would just laugh about it. And they would say, hey, listen, you're not going to get her to change her mind. If she said it in her way, she has it in her head. But I did take advice. It was not just my way. Believe me, it was a team way. I don't think you can do a business without a good team with you. And that's what I had. So a lot of decisions we made were collective. But at the end of the day, if I wanted something to get through and people just didn't see that vision, 
sometimes I just said, hey, listen, I know nobody around the table agrees with this. However, I really believe this is the right way. You might be right and you'll come in and tell me you were right. And if I'm right, I'm not going to run down the hall and tell you I was because at the end of the day, I don't need it. The results will be there. So that's sort of how we ran and it really worked out well for our team. We did amazing things, Lori. When we sold our company, we were four times the size we were whenever I got it handed to me. And, um, we just did really great things. We not just expanded our business, but our brand. Our brand was very, very strong. Our book of business did not vacate us. What we did was, it was really high high angle rescue tank cleaning. Stuff that we did is very sophisticated. It's very dangerous. A lot of people would never even bid a job, yet alone do the job. And that's the tech, that's what we brought to the table the knowledge, the technique, the safety, everything that was paramount to our business. So our clients just loved us. And you had a pretty clear strategy, it sounds like. Those people that you brought in around 2001, 2002, you know, as your management team, you were pretty clear with them. This is a turnaround. We need to really grow this business and we need all hands on deck for strategy and execution. And, and they were with you, as you said, till when you sold the company. How did you align your team to that mission? What was really important as you look back now in terms of bringing everybody on board? So what was nice is I didn't have to hire outside. I did hire a health and safety gentleman outside that I did bring in from the outside. The other people were there. They just weren't in the capacity. I felt that they could play at. So they were multiple promotions. I took a guy from the field and made him a vice president. I mean, who does these things? Normally, there's a transition to GM or operations. I took him right from the field to a VP status. So um, I just knew they had the talent, they had the vigor, they had the, you know, finesse, the knowledge, everything I felt that we needed to make it happen. So I was lucky that I had it in-house. I didn't have to take a chance on somebody on the outside. So let's flash forward and talk about the sale of the company. Can you give me a little bit of background on that? Was the company on the market? No, we weren't on the market. I did over the years get a lot of calls from venture capitalists that wanted to buy a piece, the second bite of the apple, that whole theory. And that never really appealed to me. I always felt that if we sold our business and back to my Wall Street days earlier, our company specialized in IPOs. So I was very familiar with taking a company public because that's what we did, the red herring process, all of that stuff. So all my roots really came back for this transition whenever this call came in. So the venture capital, I never was really interested. I felt a strategic buyer is somebody I would be interested in and they wouldn't chop up the company. They would need, you know, the addition or the bolt on to their business. So lo and behold, I was in the office one day and a funny story, a lot of times my calls never made it to me. We had four dawns at the time. If a message on the telephone really got to the right person on a dawn line, it was, it was a blessing, right? And they would say, do you want female dawn, male dawn? It was crazy to get through our switchboards. So with that being said, I'm at my office and I phone rings and I always pick up my phone. I don't care what the number is on the other end. I always pick up my line. I picked up the phone and this gentleman introduces himself and he introduces he's with, you know, this big company and that they would be interested in talking to us and we'd be interested in selling that they knew we were a G2 and they didn't know how long I wanted to stay. And they got right into it. Um, they did not have a company representing them. It was the company that called me. And I said, hmm, I said, no, we're not for sale. 
And he asked me if I would think about it. And I said, well, I would think about it. But, you know, we really weren't for sale. We see this as a long-term play. We want to remain privately held. And um, so I really wasn't interested. But it was sort of in the back of my mind. And the reason why I was in the back of my mind is I have had an uncle. Unfortunately, he passed away. He was a very successful business owner. And the same thing happened to him. He had an offer in the second mortgage lending space, which honestly, he pioneered that whole second mortgage lending space, grew his company all throughout the U.S. Um, it was multiple 55 offices. I mean, I really found him fascinating. And he passed on an offer. So that was in the back of my head, too. I thought, who am I to not listen or see what these people are about? Do I really know that this thing's sustainable to generation three. At the time, our kids were in high school. When I looked at the four of them, my sister has two, I have two. I wasn't sure if I saw the talent coming up through the ranks to lead and run this environmental cleanup transportation because the company really does need somebody that wants to get up at two in the morning. And this generation, I'm not saying anything about their generation, but I'm not sure at 2 and 3 and 4 a.m. if I saw that yet where they would be fire and passion in the belly to get up out of bed and go to work. So I thought about all of that. And I did call. He called. We met. Um, it was a short brief meeting at the D.C. club in town. And um, it's still funny this day. He says, yeah, she gave me potato chips and a pop and sent me on my way. He left some information. Um, and then I decided yeah, maybe it's the right time. And that decision rested with me. You know, I said to Donald, I said, hey, what do you think? He said, listen, you run this company. At that time, no, I was president and CEO, obviously. I eventually got the CEO title added to my title. And he said, I can't make this decision. And I realized it would be too hard for him. When a founder has to make the decision to sell their business, I can't imagine what that's like. That would be like selling one of your children out. So he said to me flat out, I, this is your decision. So I made the decision to sell. Did you have any other advisors or did you have a family council or, or advisory board or anyone that you could talk to about it? No, I think loose lips sink ships. I didn't need to talk to somebody about whether or not I wanted to sell the business. Our family, my immediate family did not know until two and a half weeks prior. And I know a lot of people might say, oh my God, that is crazy. But there was only two shareholders. So unless you have multiple shareholders, you really don't need to notify anybody because the shareholders are the ones that are going to decide to sell or not. And then my immediate inside team, which consisted of four people, um, are the only people that knew. My assistant didn't even realize we were selling the business because I just think that my credibility if the deal did not close, would be ruined by my people. And I couldn't live with that. I never cared if the deal closed or not. It really didn't matter to me, to be honest with you. And I felt if I told the wrong, wrong person and they told two people and they tell five people next thing you know, it's on the street. And I had told my employees for years we would remain privately held. So I held that very near and dear to my heart. So that's why I told less people. No, we didn't have advisors. So there, it was definitely a financial decision. I'm sure the deal terms were amenable to you. But then there was this emotional decision. Did you wrestle with it for uh, days, weeks? How, how long until you gave a yes to the strategic buyer that you were interested in selling? 
Oh, geez. It took a long time, several months. And then we got into due diligence. It still was the CEO at the time. He since moved on to another company. He said, I didn't know if we would get this deal closed because I saw the love you had for your business and the passion. And I said, you know, I have, I can have love and passion for any business, to be honest with you. So I, that's how I saw it. Business is business. We did sell. And at that next day, I said to my work for you now. And I met it and I went to work for them. I actually got promoted. They were a Wall Street company. I inherited another business that they had acquired similar to ours. They were in the water blasting business. I picked up a director job there. I traveled for them for two years and then I parted company. So you worked for them for two years. That's pretty uncommon. A lot of times when the deal closes, the original family is out. We were lucky. Now, the part of our deal was we all had to stay. Um, my whole leadership team had to sign non-competes. We had to say we would stay on for two years, some people a little longer. So there was uh, defined agreements that they, they were buying, not just the company, they were buying the management leadership team, which I was very proud of. Yeah, no, I understand that. And I had a somewhat similar experience. And coincidentally, it was right around the same time. So you and I can talk about that more offline. And for the listeners, maybe we'll cover that in another show. Um, so I'd love to learn a little bit more about your life since you've moved on from the industry. You were in that industry for many years, and you had a lot of passion for it. And appreciate you sharing your experience and selling the company. I'm curious about what you're doing now. And we'll love to have you tell me about your firm and tell me about your firm, which is called We Guide You Grow and the work that you're doing with clients. Great. So I started We Guide You Grow three years ago. And I said to myself, I want to take what I've learned and share it. And I wanted consultants, you know, I just, that word for me, I like to be a partner with my clients. I like to be at the table with them in a big way. Sometimes consultants, you can overpay them and they underdeliver. I wanted people to have true value with what they get if they do call my company. So I do a variety of things. It's really all customized for a client's needs. So my projects are very, very different. Sometimes it's conflict resolution within a leadership team. Sometimes it's placement of key talent for them that maybe they were having a hard time locating. I have a way of how I look for talent, how I interview talent. Um, PI may be a piece. Sometimes maybe PI isn't always a piece in what I try to do. I do help them grow their business. You know, how, how can they grow not just their top line? Because I think a lot of times we focus on top line. I spend a lot of time on the bottom, bottom line. How do they improve their bottom line? How do they get the best financial response that they can? Maybe it's a price increase. You know, how do you communicate a price increase? So I do a variety of things for my clients. That's sort of my wheelhouse. I, I'm not afraid of any project. I'm not afraid of any business. I think ultimately business for is the same, frankly, whether you're a manufacturer, service company, medical, I feel the principles around business are the same. And then lastly, I wrote a book and I know we can get into get your game face on. I love talking about it. I think the core principles for me has been being fair, being assertive, being consistent every day. And whether you do that in your private life, whether you do that in your business life, I think if you really, really dissect those words, I think you become positive in your approach, you become approachable, you become transparent, people know who you are, 
So that's sort of what I'm working on now and the passion I have for that. So between the book and clients, placement of key executive and talent, I'm pretty busy gal. Yeah, you sure sound busy. And we'll talk about the book more in a second. I want to just ask a question. You were in the business, you know, running hard, getting up at two in the morning, four in the morning to go to work. And then that sort of comes to a stop. And then, you know, you find yourself transitioned from a personal standpoint, financial standpoint, business standpoint. What was that like as you were exploring your options and really thinking through your second act career, if you will? There's some great podcasts out there that talk about next act stories. And I love hearing people's stories about how they got from point A to point B. How did you get from, you know, working at Weavertown to then the strategic buyer to now to your own firm? Was that an overnight it just clicked or did you really have to do some sort of self-exploration and thinking about what you wanted to do next? Well, I did something that most people probably can't say they did. I went and got married. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So um, I was um, seeing somebody at the time we sold our business and we really had a good time dating for several years after that. And then, you know, ultimately he proposed and I got married. So I had a window there that I never had for myself because when I worked so hard, I never really had time necessarily to develop all my personal life and, you know, my children and family. Um, I was a single parent for many, many years. I have two children, wonderful, beautiful kids that are adults now. And um, so I took a little bit of time out for myself and that was really fun. Um, There was a loss of business for during that time. I missed it. I missed the thrill of a deal. I missed negotiating. I missed developing a client list. And um, so my husband started a business during that time. He has a commercial cleaning company, Clean Isles. So I helped him with that, helped him launch his business. And so that was fun. And he was sort of my test pilot, if you will. Not that I didn't think I could launch another business or anything, but finding cleaners in a state of unemployment, you know, at the time was very, you know, now we're at an all-time high unemployment rate. We weren't when he started. So you had to be really creative to find people that wanted to do commercial cleaning. And um, so that's what I did. So I was pretty busy with that. And then I, we got you grow us all at the same time. Okay. And how about your decision to write a book? What went into thinking about that? I've heard that writing a book is really challenging. So I always wanted to write a book. So it was always something out there. I just had no time to sit with my pen and paper. I always like to write. I've always been a letter writer. I enjoy it. My newsletters at work, you know, it comes natural to me. I don't agonize over it. I just sit with a blank canvas and I got words on a page pretty quickly. And um, so I always said I was going to write a book. I won an award for leadership from junior achievement and a young lady interviewed me from Peters Township High School and she selected me out of all the winners and interviewed me and she says, so what haven't you done yet? And this is back when I ran Weavertown Environmental. I says, you know, I want to write a book someday. Well, I had a book launch party all during right when COVID started, of all times to launch a book. And then it says on there, growing a business or any economy. I don't think I saw COVID or the pandemic happening, but I still think you can grow your business in spite of it. So I had my book launch party two days before we were told to shut in and place and never leave your home for a while. And I invited her and she was so moved that I remember that you know, A, she interviewed me. B, I thought I was going to write a book. So I brought her to the book launch to show her that you, you can 
fulfill your dreams if you stick with their idea. <laughs> that's really sweet. I'm sure that was a very meaningful thing for her. She'll remember that and tell that story for a long time. And yeah, the title of your book is, it's almost like, not like you had a premonition, but it is something that you wrote here, The Secret to Growing Your Company in Any Economy. And yeah, no one could have predicted what we've been all facing in, in terms of unemployment and the loss of enterprise value over the last few months. It's a tricky question I'm going to ask you, but I'll ask it anyway. What advice do you have for family businesses considering options for selling their company? Well, that's a toughie because it's personal to each person in the family. I know whenever we did announce to our immediate family, I did hire some prof a professional to help with the dialogue um, because I didn't want them to think I kept something so big from them. But they all had difference of an opinion. But I think it really goes back to the people that are actually in the company working it every day. That decision, probably they're closer to the subject matter than a shareholder that maybe is removed and gets a distribution dividend check annually or quarterly or whatever their business is paying out. So I, I think that we should think about that as we think about selling a company. Who really has the decision in it? And I think those that are closest to it, those that are running it, leading it, uh, I think they probably have the bigger decision to be made. And it's hard. It's, it's, it's very hard to sell something that your family and the community gets recognized for. If you're a national company or international jobs, all the people that you hired, I, it's just so personal. I just think you have to take time with it. Um, you know, pray about it. If you're prayerful in, in nature, I, I just think that's how you come to the answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everyone's answer is going to be different. And certainly the circumstances are different, especially now when valuations might be different than they were a year ago. But, you know, even with valuations and as dark, I watched the news yesterday, I saw some great family businesses, restaurants that I love, that I hope they can stay in business. I mean, this is really, really honestly crazy times that we're in. But even through that, creativity comes to mind. You know, you're seeing people do some pretty neat things with this curbside service, um, you know, making appointments to come in and have private showing. Stores can do some things there, some flexibility. So I think the more creative one can be through this time, businesses may actually come out a little stronger. But again, you have to be creative and you have to really think, what can I do differently or how can I tweak my business? My trainer, the gyms are closed, but he's doing virtual training on an iPod. And a lot of people have home gyms. So good for him that he put something together. So he still has a revenue source coming in. So there's always ways, not always, but a lot of times there may be more ways around things than people realize it's just going to take really digging in and thinking about it hard. And how can I still deliver my service? Even if somebody can't come in my store, I can bring it out to their car. My sister has a retail business. She has three shops and that's what she does. She has curbside. They call her, she places the order, bags it up and takes it out to their car. Creativity, resilience. It's amazing to see some of the, and hear about some of these stories from companies. And like you said, even solopreneurs who have totally pivoted to something different. And maybe that's a business line that they'll stay in because it's just something that they've taken to and actually really enjoy. Exactly. And today people like getting served to their car. You know, I saw in another state, they're doing like the old drive-in. I think you'll see drive-ins come back. I think you're going to see a lot of businesses operate differently moving forward. Speaking of drive-ins, remember drive-in movie theaters when we were younger? 
Yeah, for sure. I think they're going to come back. You're I gonna think they're coming back. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to get a burger and fries um, to your door. No doubt about it. <laughs> Bring back the big boy. Bring back the big boy. There's a lot of things to be proud of in your career, Dawn. You've done some amazing things. And, you know, I read a statistic that 24% of family businesses are led by female CEOs or presidents. So you're part of a pretty impressive group there. And I was curious to ask you, what are you most proud of as you look back on your life or your career? I want to say all of it, right? Because I don't want to change a thing about it. I've had a good ride. I have another ride to come in me. I'm proud of the leadership that I built. I'm proud of teamwork. I think that's something I'm most proud of is how do you take people that are from all different types of walks of life, sit around the conference room table and come up with an idea that people didn't see. I think that's what I'm proud of. I think I did it well. I still do it today. So I like creating something that nobody saw before. I like that a lot. So last question for you. I like to ask all my guests if you have a favorite saying or a mantra regarding entrepreneurship. I do. It's, it's one of mine. It's if you're not growing, you're not going. If you're not growing, you're not going. Yeah. That means you're going backwards. And when did you come up with that saying? Oh, I've said it so long. I think I said it. Oh, geez. I've been. I honestly think I've said in my dad's company so long, I can't remember when I founded it. I think in sales, I think without a sale, it's just an idea that never is going to get executed because if somebody doesn't buy what you say, then you don't have a purchase order. So I've said it, I guess, back whenever I started is in my 20s, late 20s. I can see that as a billboard. I can see that as a decal on the side of a car. What would your dad say about that? Oh, he would love it. <laughs> he, would, he wouldn't even second guess it now. He would be like, oh, there she goes again. <laughs> That's great. It's probably a good place to wrap up. Dawn, before we go, can you tell us how people can find you? What's your website? How do you want people to find you in your book? Yeah, great. So my website is www.weguideyougrow.com. And then there you can order the book right there if you wish, or you can go to amazon.com and look up, get your game face on by Don Fuchs Coleman. And then I also have LinkedIn. I have not moved to Twitter and all these other things just because I'm a little busy in my day and evening jobs. I just decided to try to build my brand without having to do all that social media platform. And so far it's worked. So I do not have a Twitter. I'm not a Facebooker, but I am a LinkedIner. Awesome. So people can find you on LinkedIn or your website. Dawn, thank you so, so much for being here. I got to let you know, too, you are my first interview on the show as a, as a female CEO. So you're that dubious honor. And you did a fantastic job telling your story. And I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for being here. Oh, thank you so much, Lori. And I wish you nothing but all the best in your business as well. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Three things before you go. One, follow Succession Stories podcast on LinkedIn. Join the community to share feedback, submit questions, and ideas for future episodes. Two, if you want to develop a roadmap for your business to innovate, transition, or grow, message me, Lori Barkman, on LinkedIn about VIP consulting. And three, if you enjoyed the episode, hit five stars in Apple Podcasts and share with friends and good pods. Thanks again for tuning in.